If we could open our Bibles to John's Gospel, chapter 4. Hoping to look at the first 26 verses this morning. It's uh, a wonderful chapter. Let me read it and follow along with me if you would. John chapter 4 says, Therefore, when the Lord knew that Jesus, or I'm sorry, that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city at Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground where Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Joseph's well, or Jacob's well, excuse me, was there. And Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well, and it was about the sixth hour. And a woman of Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered and said unto her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would also have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? And Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but what I shall give him, but whoever drinks of the, of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. And Jesus said to her, Go and call your husband and come here. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband, and that you truly speak. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and that you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship. For salvation is of the Jews, but the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Father, we just thank you for this passage this morning. And Lord, there's, there's so much here, God. Um, and Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts, Lord, to appropriate those things that we have read and we'll be looking into this morning. And Lord, that you would challenge us and even warn us, Father, of, of, of things that we need to take a look at in our own hearts this morning. And so have your way with us. And Lord, again, you may, may you be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. 
You know, as we looked at that passage, it really highlighted a number of things. Um, the first one is the overcoming of social barriers in order to reach a woman that was lost in her sin, and we will look at that here shortly. It also demonstrates to us the fact that Jesus is omniscient, meaning that he knows all things. He can't learn anything. And I'm really glad for that because if he could learn something, then he's really not worth being to wor- he's really not worth worshiping. Because if God is who he is and who he says he is, that means he knows all things. Didn't he say, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the ending? Isn't he able to tell history before it happens? Isn't that what we hold in our hands this morning? It is. And that is who he says he is. So Jesus, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one God in three persons, the blessed Trinity as we sing in the hymn, He is omniscient. He knows all things. We'll see that as we look into this passage this morning. And also, an instruction on true worship. On true worship. And that is a topic that today is very important because worship has turned into something that I believe God never intended it to be. Worship is something that's been redefined like most things in our culture, unfortunately. Isn't it interesting that terms now are being redefined? So many terms are being redefined. Marriage is being redefined. Everything is being redefined. And why does it need to be refined? Well, it suits the natural man. That's, the, that's, that's why. It suits the natural man. If we can redefine marriage to say that it's not just between a husband and a wife, a male and a female in the bonds of marriage, If we can redefine it to whatever we want, then we think that we are free, but really we are in a bondage. And I would agree with you that, or would you agree with me, actually, that we are in a bondage in this country right now? So he's going to be giving her an instruction on what true worship is and also his power to save, which is really the, the highlight of the message today is the fact that Jesus is that gift. The gift of God, the gift of God, not a gift. God does give many gifts, but there's one gift that he has given, which, is, which overwhelms all, of, all other gifts, the gift of his son, the gift of salvation. You know this very well. Jesus, his name is a, is a, is a contraction, actually from two Hebrew words, Jehovah Shua, which means God's salvation or God's, you know, God's salvation. And Joshua is the Jewish name that Mary called, that she called Jesus when he was running around the house. She would say, Joshua, Jehovah Shua, God's salvation. He is the gift of God. A gift to all of us, a gift not only of himself. You know, he. Not only, you know, his sacrifice on the cross, and and it's not even so much just the eternal salvation, which is the most important part, because we live in a very short period of time, don't we? 70, 80, maybe 90 years, some people really push the envelope and get to 100, very few of us. We have a short time on this earth, but then eternity, which never ends. It never ends. 
So I'm thankful for that eternal salvation. That's what he gives us. But even now, within the time frame, this short little blip of time, which almost doesn't even exist in the grand scheme of comparison to eternity, we have such a wonderful time here, even in this short time that we live in Christ on this planet. The life that we live now is better than anything we could have imagined. I mean, wouldn't you agree with me? He has truly been a gift to us. Jesus has been the gift of my life, the greatest gift I could have ever received, and I could never have deserved it. And I know we all feel the same. I could never, we could never deserve such a great and wonderful gift that Jesus Christ is and all that he did. And so it's really important that we grasp this, that he is the gift of God. And I love the fact, as we read this passage, that he goes out of his way. He goes out of his way from a very busy place. He left Judea, which is where Jerusalem is. He left that area that was bustling with activity. And he decided to go to Galilee. And we'll look at that in a minute. But he had to go through Samaria. He didn't have to go through Samaria, but then yet again he did. And we will look at that too. We serve such a wonderful Savior. He is so awesome. And I pray that you fall in love with him more today than you ever have. Because it is such good news that we carry. It is such good news that we have. And the gift of salvation is so wonderful. Cherish it, church. Cherish that relationship with Jesus Christ. Foster that relationship with Jesus Christ. He wants to do it with you. He wants to foster that with you. But we have to be willing participants, don't we? Sometimes I'm not always a willing participant. He wants to bless you. He says he wants to pour out his blessings on your head in abundance from heaven. I don't know about you, but I want that. I need that. In a world of chaos, in a world of hurt and pain, especially as we were coming upon the end of things, I need that. I want him to wash away all my fears. I want him to wash away all the hurts. Don't you? To wash away all the pain. Let's get into our text this morning. Let's start with verse 1. Notice, therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that, John, that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples did, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. You remember in chapter 3, he was already in Judea. He was in Jerusalem talking to Nicodemus, that wonderful dialogue that we had of, of Nicodemus understanding that he needed to be born again. He needed to be born from above. And it says in John chapter 3, 22, it says, After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there they remained with them, and they baptized. But now we see in verse 3 here in our text that he leaves this place of Judea, and he departs to Galilee. He departs. And notice what it says here, that therefore when the Lord heard, when he knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus baptized more than John, and Jesus leaves then. And I don't believe for a moment that Jesus is leaving because he feared the Pharisees. In fact, I think in reality, they feared him. They didn't quite understand him. They certainly didn't believe that he was 
the Messiah, although throughout his life, those three and a half years, he made it abundantly clear that he was the one that the prophets had foretold for hundreds of years, even a few thousand years. Now he is standing before them. And you know, think of the, the, the reality of that. I mean, these guys really had to search the scriptures. They really had to face some very hard things. You know, there's a part of me that I'm glad I didn't see Jesus while he was on the earth. Jesus said, blessed are those who haven't seen me and yet believe. Because there's something about seeing a man in front of us that we size him up. We do that. It's very, unfortunately, it's very natural. We look at people and we size them up. And I'm so glad that I didn't see Jesus face to face. I'm so glad that I've got the record here that tells me of his glorified state, which is more of a reality of who he really is. Because to see a man dressed the way he was, we would be tempted to look at him as any other man. But he proved to his disciples through many infallible proofs, the Bible tells us, that he was and is the Son of God, that he is Jesus Christ. And so... I don't believe he left because he was in fear, but rather they feared him because Jesus was very much in control of everything before he would ultimately go to Jerusalem and be crucified. He was carefully throttling, if you will, the time that he had. And as his popularity increased, as you know, things become more difficult. People start to throng you, and pretty soon they're all around you, and you can't really, you're constricted in what you can do. And therefore, I believe Jesus had to leave that place. And this is why I believe the disciples, after his transfiguration, that he would say this to them. You remember, Jesus was transfigured before them up on the mountain, and they saw Moses and Elijah there with Jesus. And you recall what happened, that it says in verse 9 of Matthew 17, as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, tell the vision to no man until the sun, until, tell the vision to no man. I would be blabbing it, I'd be posting it on Twitter, I'd be doing all these things on Facebook, even putting a photograph of me and Elijah, you know, you know a selfie, I'd be doing all that. You know, it'd be all over the place, but what did Jesus say? Unusually, he says, Tell the vision to no man until, until there's a specific time, guys, that I want you to post it, but not now. I want you to wait until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. He didn't want any restrictions, and the more popular he got, the more restricted he became. So Jesus, I believe, is very wisely trying to keep his mobility to get to the people that he needed to get to and to minister in the way. And he knew exactly what he was doing. Nobody took his life from him. He willingly laid down his life for you and I. He was no martyr. A martyr is caught. A martyr is hung because of what they've done. That wasn't the case with Jesus. He willingly, in fact, the Bible says that he set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem. He knew what he was supposed to do. He knew his mission. It was a rescue mission to rescue you and I from our sin and to give us eternal salvation through his blood that was shed. I love that. I love that. Also in Matthew chapter 8, you remember that Jesus healed a leper and the leper came and worshiped him and he says, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus put his hand, which was unusual. Nobody touches a leper. It's very contagious. But Jesus touches him and says, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately his leper, leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him something interesting. He said, see that you tell no man. <laughs> Are you kidding me? I was, on my, I was on death's door. I was condemned to death. 
had a disease that there was no cure for. And you heal me and you just want me to keep a lid on it? How is that possible? <laughs> for this man it wasn't because it says, he says, but go your way and show yourself to the priests and offer the gift that Moses commanded for, as a testimony to them. But he broadcasts it, right? Because of his, his joy. For, and, and who can blame him? Who can blame him? But Jesus' hour had not yet come. We're not going to look at all of these scripture references, but there are many of them where Jesus said that his hour had not yet come. And so just like the passage we're looking at right now, he, he leaves Judea, but he must go to, through Samaria. He's going from Judea to Galilee. He's got to go into this middle section of Samaria. He has to go. He's compelled to go there for many reasons. But his hour had not yet come. In John 7, verse 3, Jesus' brothers who came to Christ after his resurrection, James and Jude was one of them, his brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples may also see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he sees, while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers didn't believe in him. And here it is. Then Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. Always ready. And many times he spoke in John 7, verse 30. Therefore he sought, they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. In John chapter 8, verse 19 and 20, Jesus sparring with the disciples. They said, where is your father? And Jesus says, you don't know my father or me. And these words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught them in the temple. And again, no one laid hands on him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. But there was a time. There was a time. And it wasn't a physical hour like 60 minutes. When the Bible speaks of his hour has not yet come, it's a period of time. It's not a strict 24-hour period in this instance. And we know that because in John chapter 12, this was the, uh, roughly a week before he would be crucified on the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. What does it say? But Jesus answered them and said, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified as he makes his entry into Jerusalem. And even that night before the night before he would be arrested and crucified, they had Passover. And it says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, the hour of his, certainly of his crucifixion, the, the, the time that he would be going through this turmoil and this great trial, it was coming but notice it says, but he needed to go through Samaria. And I love how the King James Version puts this. In the King James Version it says, he must needs go through Samaria. He must needs go through Samaria. And I love this because right here, if you look on, the, on a map, right to the west of the very northern tip of the Dead Sea, there's Jerusalem. And so the normal thing to go from here to Galilee, he has to go through an area right in the middle called Samaria. And most of the Jews would actually go to the west, or I'm sorry, to the east, across the Jordan River in an area called Perea, and go all the way up the, the side of the Jordan River, and then cross over somewhere up here to get into Galilee. And we'll look at that. And it was because of bigotry. Bigotry. 
But Jesus confounds everybody and goes straight into Samaria because the, the shortest distance between two lines or between two points is a straight line, right? Jesus is very logical. He's not hung up on all of these labels and all of these things that people might do. He is not hung up. He was not a prejudiced man. He was not a bigot. So Jesus was going to leave, uh, and the obvious route was straight. And, um, but the shortest route is just to go straight through. So why did he need to go through Samaria? Why did he need? He could have went around and crossed east like we looked at and went up and then over into Galilee. Well, the simple answer to that question is, there was not only a woman there who needed salvation, but there was also an entire village of people that Jesus knew they were hungry for the truth. And no one would touch them. No one would minister to them because they were considered half-breeds. They were looked down upon because of their, they had roots in pagan idolatry. And we'll look at that this morning too. But it says in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, the Son of Man has come to seek and what? Save that which was lost. He's, he breaks all the boundaries. And that's what I love about Jesus. He breaks all the boundaries. When you try to confine him into a box and say, well, you can't go minister to that people because do you know what they did? He's like, oh, I know what they did. And it's because of what they did that I need to go to them. It's so different from the way we think. God has a heart of compassion and love. And the world, we can get so, the world, the people in the world can get so ugly and so prejudiced and so bigoted. And we see it all around When you were led to Christ, who was, who was it that ministered to you that day, perhaps, that you gave your heart to Christ? Why did that person bump into you that day? Perhaps the Lord orchestrated their day and yours to make sure that you intersected so that you must needs be bumping into each other for the sole purpose of you, Christian. You're the one who has the truth in your heart. You're the one who has this treasure in an earthen vessel. You're the one that has the opportunity. You're the one that has the solution to all the things that are hurting people. The solution is Jesus Christ. He is the solution, not politics. Politics, in my opinion, is a band-aid. It's a band-aid. If you want to get to the source of the problem, you heal from within so that the Band-Aid is not necessary. All man can do, all natural man can do is put a Band-Aid on it. Oh, you got a scratch. Let me put a Band-Aid on it. Jesus says, no, you got a scratch. Let me heal that thing. But Jesus leaves. The 99 and he goes after the one. That woman that we're going to be looking at today. In Luke 15, verse 4, it says, What man of you having a hundred sheep, Jesus said, if he loses one of them, does he not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one that was lost till he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine just persons who need repentance. And Jesus went out of his way, remember, leaving a very bustling, 
bustling area of people who thought they were right with God because of their external uh, ordinances that they went through. And Jesus was looking in his heart. He knew these people right now, they don't need, the, they don't even want me, but I know that there's somebody, there's a, there's a group of people, there's a woman that I have an appointment with. She doesn't even have it on her Outlook calendar yet, but she's going to bump into me. She's going to bump, I'm going to make sure of it. And he meets her at a very unusual time when women don't normally go out for water too, which I think is even more exciting. But the joy that Jesus had in this event is evident in how he answers his disciples later on in this chapter, which we'll get to next week. But he says to them, after he, after he has this um, dialogue with this woman, they ask him, and they said, in the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, you need to eat something. We know that you haven't eaten anything, and you've been traveling for quite a while. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. He has food to eat. Doing the will of God was his food. It was everything to him, and ought to be to us as well. To do those things that please the Lord. To do those things that honor him. That is what Jesus is talking about. And to think that he intervened in this woman's life, knowing very well that she would go into the village and actually bring out many people, and they would believe on him as a result of her testimony. Jesus sees this all in advance. And he's like, that is my food. That is my food to see the lost coming to me, coming to God, being reconciled. Isn't that his mission? Isn't that his joy? Isn't that the thing that would constrain him? And I pray that it would constrain us more and more because I don't know about you, but in our culture that we live in, it's just wearing. It's like water on sandstone and just kind of wearing us away. And I would encourage you to ask God to give you that heart of evangelism again. Lord, give us that heart of evangelism again, personally and corporately, that we would be able to go out. And I'm hoping that we can do this in July. Lord willing, we'll go out on those Sunday nights. And we'll talk more about that as we get going here, or you know, later. But let's do that. Let it challenge us to do those things and break out of our comfort zones. Why? Because God loves people. He loves people. He created them in his image. He created us in our mother's womb. He knew us before we were even born. What does it say in Jeremiah? Before I formed you. Before I formed you. So much for the health care or the, um, uh, what is it, the Reproductive Health Care Act. They say, well, you can abort babies up to a certain number of weeks or, you know, whatever. And God's going, excuse me, but life... I know that life began and it was going to be before it even was conceived. Isn't that scary? Before you were even formed in the womb, God tells to Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 5, before I formed you, before you were even conceived, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. Oh my goodness. What about David in Psalm 139? For you have formed my inward parts. You've covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame or my bones was not hidden from you. I was made in secret, skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. And notice this wonderful thought. Let your heart get carried away with this, brothers and sisters. And your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they all were written, the days fashioned for me when as yet there was none of them. 
That means that he knows exactly what he has planned for your life. Do you know what his plan is for your life? Do you want to know what his plan is for your life? Believe me, if you, if you desire to know, trust me, God will see it through. He will, I know this because I was so in angst when I became a Christian. I, wanted, I heard about this God's will business. And I wanted God's will to be done in my life. But I felt like everything I did was, I was going in the wrong direction. Can anybody relate? I just felt like, I don't know how to do this, God. If you're not speaking to me physically, like, go here, go there. I don't know what I'm doing. (laughs) And I did. I, I came to a crisis in my life. And then finally, somebody just told me one day, I mean, God has spoken to my heart on a number of occasions, very clearly. And I knew it was him. He's spoken to me in his word, and I knew he was speaking to me in his word. And he's spoken to me through other people. But that is something that is just, it is just an awesome thing to know that he is, he's, he's doing that. He loves me. He loves you. I had a thought there and it just kind of went somewhere else. So, cause, <laughs> but I love it in Isaiah 44. What does it say? Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, and he who formed you in the womb. I am the Lord who makes all things, who stretches out the heavens all alone, who spreads abroad the earth by myself. Wonderful, wonderful things, wonderful promises of God. But he said, I must go through Samaria. I must go through Samaria. Now, this was going to be a real challenge. And I'm going to share some things with you this morning. Actually, I've been really struggling with. And even as I go along, I'm still debating. (laughs) So forgive me if I seem a little disjointed. But when we look at what is going on in Jesus's ministry at this moment that we're looking at. He's reaching a people that nobody wanted to reach. He's reaching a people that nobody wanted anything to do with on religious grounds and on social grounds. And obviously he breaks all those chains. But we have to look at this word, bigotry. You can call it racism, you can call it whatever you want. But bigotry is A person obstinately or intolerantly devoted to his or her own opinions and prejudices, especially who regards or treats the members of a group as a racial or ethnic group with hatred or and intolerance. And that is very, uh, that has happened. It happens in every country. It's not just the United States where we have this problem. It happens in many other places. But this is kind of like the elephant, I think, in the room as we address this passage. And bear with me and forgive me in advance because I, I, um, I'm really wrestling with this. But God is not bigoted. And neither should we. He is not bigoted. Jesus wasn't going to allow the ethnic differences between the Jews and the Samaritans to get in the way, and neither should it get in our way. There should be nothing that gets in our way. We have differences. Some people have differences in their facial structure. Some people have different levels of melatonin in their skin. I think that's what it's called. You know, different pigments in their skin. Is that right? That's not right, is it? Melodin? Melatonin. 
Melamin. Yeah, there, there it is. That's the right word. Lord, help me. I'm really glad you're laughing because what I got to share is not so easy. A little levity is good at this time. But he wasn't going to allow those kinds of things to get in the way, and neither should it. It should never get in the way, ever. We have differences. We may even have physical variations, but we come from one. We come from Adam. There is one human race. One human race, not many races. I don't know if you noticed that. It's one race. We have differences, and within our DNA... Within our DNA, we share 99.9% of our DNA is the same across all of humanity. That's a fact. And within that DNA, there are variations that are allowed to occur, but it never goes outside the boundary for which God has intended it. In other words, you're a human being, and your DNA is not like the DNA of a fish. It's different. You're not going to all of a sudden grow a fin. That's why evolution is a complete disaster. They were made according to their kind, just like we were. We are a kind, and we have never, we're not evolving, folks. That is the biggest lie from the pit of hell. There was one race, from Adam, the first man, and then through him came Noah, and then Shem, Ham, and Japheth. They and their wives, they repopulated the earth after the flood, and the population of that post-flood world was from one race. There is only one human race, not many races of people. I even love what it says in our Declaration of Independence. It says, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Even our own constitution reflects what the Bible says is true. Because it is true. What the Bible says is true, and the Declaration of Independence is just saying amen to that. Right? We are one race. One race of people. Yes, we have our difference, but we are one. And the devil... He's doing a very good job at dividing us right now. Dividing us. He wants to give us the impression that we are different races. And whenever there is a different race, then it ultimately comes down to my camp and your camp and that other camp. And then what naturally happens as a result of that? I don't like the way you look. I don't like your culture. I don't like where you came from. It's different from mine and mine's better. Really? It's kind of all relative, isn't it? Because we are from one race. One human race. Not races. One human race. Very important for that. We are one race. There are organizations that are fueling this today. And, and, and bear with me, okay? Because this is something I was just going to cut all together, but I'm just going to go for it. And... Um, because of what we're going to be talking about here, I, need, I want to inform you and I want to also warn you. I want to inform you and also warn you within the context of this passage because as we go through the book of John, I don't know that I would be able to put this in there anywhere else and it logically fits. It hit me like a ton of bricks and so I'm just going to share it with you. We know that there are organizations that are fueling this today within the United States, fueling this hatred between the races, stirring it up. It was getting better. 
and now it's stirred back up again. Are there wrongs in our culture? Are there wrongs in our history? Yes, there are, but there are many awesome things that have occurred. But is that any reason to just dismantle the culture, dismantle the United States and rebuild it? I don't think it is. When something's wrong, you fix the thing that's wrong. And it is complicated. And there's a lot of hurt involved in it. But there are organizations that are fueling this. They, they're, they're trying to break down our society. They're trying to create anarchy with the intent of destroying our moral Judeo-Christian heritage, destroying the family structure, destroying even capitalism and replacing it with a Marxist communist ideology which has never worked in any other place. It's never been successful. It leaves its people that's under its rule godless. It creates horrible atrocities. It has never been successful. The two organizations that come to mind are BLM and Antifa. Black lives matter. Black lives do matter. But the organization, as you know, I have a problem with. And Patrice Calores, one of the three founding members of BLM, said, and I'm going to have her say it for you. And I bring this up because this organization is stirring up things. It's actually part of the problem rather than being part of the solution. Let me tell you what she, let me see, i got to plug in here. Let me let her own words say it, and I think it will be very interesting. I also think that it might, um, I think of a lot of things. The first thing I think is that we actually do have an ideological frame. Um, myself and Alicia in particular are trained organizers. Um, we uh, are trained Marxists. Um, we are... Uh, Did you hear that? Super uh, versed um, on sort of ideological theories Okay, there it is. She said it herself. They are, she's a trained, she and the group are a trained, they're trained organizers, they're trained Marxists, and they're taking over our country. They're doing it. And they're doing it under the guise by stirring up this racial stuff that we're seeing right now. It, it, it's been a problem in our past. In every country uh, in this world, there is a problem with this. And we're make, we were making gains and doing so much better. And then all of a sudden, they bring this to the forefront, and they're pitting everybody against each other again. And I don't know about you, but I hate it. Amen. I hate it. Because Christ separates all, he breaks it all down, and, and, and he's the solution to it all. He's the solution. But this, this, they are part of an agenda that is coming. It's, it's in our face right now. It's the elephant in the room, and I can't help but tell you about it. And trust me, I won't be here long. They are part of an agenda that's pushing in our schools, in our culture, the critical race theory. Look into it. It's devilish. They are all about the, the gender dilemma that we're having in the schools. Does a, does, a man go, does a young man go into a girl's bathroom if he feels like fluid? He feels kind of fluid today. I'm, you know, I feel kind of fluid. I'm going to do something else today. I feel like a female. Today I feel like a male. Today I'm not sure. I feel like a lobster, I think, but I don't know. Um, you know... There's a gender dilemma. Also, the revision of history, the 1619 Project by the New York Times, totally revising history, defunding the police. That sounds like a really good idea. Yes, please, defund those who protect us. And the tearing down of national monuments. All of this is in the Marxist playbook, and they are well underway, and they're doing a good job 
So what are we to do? And, and, and I bring this up because it's creating more, they're, they're actually more of a problem than, they, than what they, it's not a solution. Do you see? It's stirring up things even more and more and causing people to be more angry with one another. And there's nothing more easy to do than to use race to do it. The pandemic was another one. I mean, the pandemic, I'm sure it wasn't their fault, but, but nobody wants to mess with the pandemic because it's somebody else's health now, too. That's why we are so afraid to take off the mask. Well, I don't want to hurt you. And everyone's telling you, you better wear your mask. You better do this. You better do that. Because if you don't, you're going to hurt somebody else. And nobody wants to do that. What a great way to create a problem. But this is something completely different. So what do we do? We pray. <laughs> we pray. We attend board and education meetings I need to start doing this more than I, because, you know, honestly, I haven't attended a board meeting in the, in the county or in my town. Attend board meetings and prayerfully engage. Notice I said prayerfully engage. Attend public town meetings and prayerfully engage. Attend public meetings in your community and prayerfully engage. Vote in the small elections, the small ones, the ones that nobody cares about. You drive right by the voting thing, but you'll be there on the, you know, every four years to vote for the president. But all these little other little guys who are shifting and moving things, they're the ones that are changing things right before our eyes. Get involved in those things. Things, the small elections, the big elections, the school board elections, especially, they're killing our kids with the stuff that they're doing. Shame on them. We must prayerfully let our voices be heard and get involved peacefully. Prayerfully get involved and peaceably be active. Does that make sense? But we, our country has many stains, doesn't it? Because as we look at Samaria and we look at the Jews and the, the bigotry that was before them, we have those kind of issues in our country. And I think they were getting better, honestly. And is America really that bad? I mean, honestly, we've got our issues, but so does every country. Nobody looks at the other countries. The, the focus right now is on us because we are the stumbling block to the one world order. We are the stumbling block. We are the, are the fly in the ointment. And if they can get rid of us, then their plan, and we know what's coming at some point, but should we just lay down and let it happen? I don't think so. We pray, and we pray, and we pray, and we get involved the best we can because it is coming to a theater near us, whether we like it or not. And I don't like it. I've cried over this. I'm seeing my country come unraveled. And I'm sorry, I'm, I've kind of hijacked the, the, the sermon here slightly. But is our country really that bad? We got, we, we, there's no doubt, we got issues. We've had plan, we have had problems in the past. But we're growing and we're learning. We're growing and we're learning. Wasn't it the Civil War in America that, put, that ended slavery when Lincoln, our 16th president, signed the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863? If America was really the problem... Maybe that wouldn't have happened, you know, and they would just continue doing this. No, but it was a Republican president, the 16th president of the United States, 1863, signed the Emancipation Proclamation, ending slavery, and also promoting the 13th Amendment of the United States Constitution, which outlawed slavery across the United States. It was in the USA that we had our first African-American president, Barack Obama, from 2007 or 2009 to 2017. I am so proud of our country that we could, that that could happen. I don't agree with his policies, but I'm glad. I would say we went, we've come a long way, baby. 
right? Things have gotten a lot better until all of this stuff has stirred things up and brought it right into the center and everybody's upset again and it's becoming unraveled before us and it's pitting people against each other. And Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the answer. The solution for all these problems in our country is the gospel of Jesus Christ. What does it say in Galatians? There is neither Jew nor Greek in Christ, mind you, in Christ. That's why it's so important that we get the news out. We, we get the gospel out because that is the thing. Granted, let's vote. Let's, let's do these things. We have to do those things in addition to the most important thing, which is to get out and share the good news of the gospel because that changes everything. It changed me. It was more than just knowledge. It was, it was a heart that was changed. Oh, for heaven's sakes, I'm so glad. Galatians 3.28, there's neither Jew nor Greek in Christ. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. You're not only one human race, but in Christ you are one as well. Does that break down everything? Why isn't it that the world can't understand that? Well, it's spiritually discerned. And it's also an affront to the natural man's heart. That's why they cannot It's not that they cannot, they will not. Do you understand the difference? They will not, because they have to submit to Christ. And when you submit to Christ, all of a sudden, I've got to give up all the awful things that I like to do that are sinful. In 1 Corinthians 12, what does it say? For as the body is one and has many members, but all the bodies of that one body, being many, are one body. So also is Christ. For by one spirit, we are all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, all have been made to drink into one spirit. In Christ, he reconciles the world with all of its bitterness, all of its little compartments that they stick people in, all the little pigeonholes and pockets that people put each other in. He goes, oh, no problem. I'll just gather it all unto myself. We are all one in Christ. Let's applaud that. (laughs) I mean, he does. He is the one who brings us into one. We are one race, and he in Christ brings us into one. There is nothing better than that. You know, honestly, if you looked at those things from at point blank, you would think that the world would be embrace it. How do we get rid of this? We just come to Christ. He loves everybody. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter what ethnic background you have. It doesn't matter. None of that matters. Are you in him or are you not? Be in him. He is the only one who can cure you. He can heal you. He can give you a new heart. Nothing else can do that. Nothing else can do that. When he changes your heart, he changes your worldview. Through the word of God, through the Holy Spirit, he changes your whole outlook. And let me tell you, it's the best thing that's ever happened in the history of the world. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. In John chapter 17, Jesus speaking in his high priestly prayer, what does he say? I would encourage you to read it. There's a lot of wonderful pronouns in that, and it's all about unification, about being unified to his Father and the, and the bride of Christ, the church, being unified to him. And, and because of that, we're all unified with him, and we're all together. He says in John 17, 11, he says, Now I am no longer in the world, but these, my disciples, they are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father. Keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are, a oneness of Christ. 
God's oneness people. I don't know about you, but I'm so glad to be a Christian. I am so glad to, to know that I am in the beloved. I'm so glad that God has us and he's making us one. He breaks down every barrier. And I hope you feel comfortable here this morning because there's not anybody who is not welcome. You are all welcome. It doesn't matter what you are. It doesn't matter where you've come from. Come and be healed. We all need healing. Come and be encouraged. We all need to be encouraged. And let God deal with these things in our hearts. And may we, we are the only ones who have the solution to a world that is dying. We have the solution. They do not have the solution. Every solution they have is a band-aid. And thank God that's all they can do. But you and I have the Spirit of God in us. You and I have the very Holy Spirit of God in us. Only we can give them the truth. I love that. So verse 5, he says, So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And many believe this is uh, Jacob's, um, probably the same name actually, is a town of Shechem, a town in Samaria. And it says, now Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, and thus sat on the well, for it was about the sixth hour. So this sixth hour was about noontime, the hottest hour of the day. And notice verse 7, a woman of Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me something to drink. Normally women would not come out in, normally, excuse me, normally women would come out in the morning when it was cooler, which makes sense. If you live in the Middle East, you do things based on the weather. You don't do things based on your schedule. Your schedule, you work around the weather. You, you draw the water in the morning when it's cool, not in the midday when it's blazing hot and 110 degrees and dry. And so here, this woman, she comes out, and she comes out at noon, which perhaps sheds a little light on her social position. And we learn in this chapter that she has already had five husbands, and the man that she's living with is not her husband, so she's already got some issues there, right? She may, be, she may be considered an outcast, if you will, of the outcast. What is she doing alone coming out? No other, other women are with her. Why is that? Because, you know, she lives in a Samaria, which is, you know, bad enough, for, you know, from her perspective, perhaps, because of all the prejudices. But now she's, because of her social, her five husbands and all this other stuff, other women might not want to be around her either. And here she is, coming out at noon to get water, and Jesus has this chance meeting because he needed to go to Samaria. Why? Because of this right here, because of her. And have you ever felt like this or known others who have felt like that, like an outcast? But what is the value of a soul? Can you put a price on the value of a soul? The soul of a human being is so precious in the sight of God. You and I are precious in his sight. He left the 99 to come to meet this one woman. And not only her, but through her, many other people in the village would come to Christ as well. What a great witness. We'll look at that next week. But it says his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And then 
The, Samir, the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask to drink of me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. See, Jesus broke the social norms here. I don't know if you recognize this, but on at least a couple of occasions. Number one, because of the prejudices of that time, conversations between men and women, much less a rabbi who they considered him to be, with a woman was very verboten. <laughs> it was very uh, something that wasn't supposed to happen, and especially between Jews and Samaritans. We're going to look at that in a minute. It was frowned upon, and not only that, the Jews looked upon the Samaritans as inferior because of their mixed race, or their mixed ethnic, you know, the Gentiles and the Jews coming together, intermarrying, having kids, and having, um, having children that are mixed. God doesn't have a problem with that. He had a problem with it for the Jews to keep them initially, to keep them separate, to keep them from getting involved in idolatry. And we see why right here. We're going to look at this, and that's about all the time we're going to have for today. But it's very interesting that, um, you know, these, these things that uh, Jesus broke these, these norms. He broke them right down. And so there was this bigotry between the Jews and the Samaritans. The woman made it very clear. Why are you, a Jew, asking me, a woman, something to drink? The, the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. What are you doing here? Do you not know anything? <laughs> well, there's a problem. You recall when the northern ten tribes were led into captivity by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. The southern two tribes of Judah and Benjamin and the northern ten tribes. And in 722, the Assyrians came and, took and besieged them in Samaria and they took them captive and brought them back to Syria. And what Sargon II, who was the king of Assyria, what he did is in place, after he removed the Jews, he took people from Babylon and other areas and he, in, he in, in, induced them or in, in, interspersed them in with the people who were left behind. There was a handful. There was a remnant of Jews that didn't get taken to captivity, but he takes this king of Assyria takes these people from Babylon and other Gentile areas and brings them into the land. They intermix with each other. They marry. They have kids. They, they bring in foreign gods. And this is the problem that God, you know, was warning them about. It was mainly a religious thing. It was mainly a, a relationship thing. They were bringing these false gods in because that's all they did. Turn with me, if you would, to 2 Kings chapter 17. We're just going to look at a couple of chapter, or a couple of passages today, and then we'll stop here. But this is why there was such bigotry between these two groups. It's important to look at this and to notice why this was. It didn't bother Jesus because he just sees a soul that needs to be saved. But people, they get out their magnifying glass. Let's see your pedigree. Let's look at your genealogy. Oh, really? <laughs> Notice in 2 Kings chapter 17, let's look at verse 24. This is what happened after the Jews in the northern ten tribes were taken captive. Notice what it says. Then the king of Assyria brought people, notice, underline this, 
The king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Cuthath, Ava, Hamath, and from Sepharvaim and placed them, notice this, in the cities of Samaria instead of the children of Israel. They were still some of them there. We know that. But he replaced them with these people groups. And they took possession of Samaria and dwelt in the cities. Now go down to verse 29. It says, however, every nation continued, those nations that came in, they continued to make gods of its own and put them in the shrines of the high places which the Samaritans had made. And every nation in the cities where they dwelt, the men of Babylon, notice what they made an image, Sukkoth Banath, the men of Cuth, made Nergal, who was another idol. The men of Hamath made Ashima, which was another deity. And the Avites made Nibhaz and Tartak. And the Sepharvites burned their children in the fire to Adramelech and to Anemelech, the gods of Sepharvaim. And so they feared the Lord. Notice, they did fear the Lord, but it wasn't, we're going to see later, they not only feared the Lord, but they also feared their idols. They had this mixture, and that was the problem. That was the reasoning behind the animosity between them and the Jews, not only because of their intermixing of their breeding, but also the idolatry. But Jesus didn't have a problem with it. I mean, he had a problem with the idolatry. And notice, let's just skip right down to the bottom there in verse 40. It says, however, they did not obey, but they followed their own rituals. So these nations feared the Lord, yet they served their carved images, also their children and their children's children. Do you understand that? The, 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 this idea is being propagated for, from generation to generation. They have continued doing as their fathers did even to this day. That is the environment that Jesus is going into. That is why there was this animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans. They saw it on a couple different levels. The intermixing, which the Jews weren't to do at that time. And the reason being is because, at the, at the very least, the influence that these Gentiles would bring in with their pagan gods, and God wanted them to be a holy people, separate unto him. Through them, the oracles of God would come. He wanted to keep them a special people, especially during that time. This is why there was so much hatred, so much bigotry. And this is why I believe the parable of the Good Samaritan was especially convicting to the Jews when they heard Jesus tell it. Let's turn here and then we'll end here this morning. Turn with me to Luke chapter 10, verse 25 through 37. Now with that background in mind, because this is what Jesus is coming into this is why nobody went through Samaria at, in the time of Jesus. They would go to the east and go over across the Jordan, follow the Jordan all the way up, and then get up near Galilee, and then turn west and go into Galilee. Nobody went through Samaria. No good Jew would go through there because they were bigoted at that time. But Jesus didn't have a problem with it. And then now let's look at this parable and you'll understand why this really cut to the heart of those who are listening to this. And you will see why. It says, Behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested Jesus, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? And so he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered rightly. Do this and you will live. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? 
And then Jesus answered and said, and I love it. I love how sometimes somebody will ask Jesus a question, and he could just answer it point blank, but he gives them a parable. And it's very poignant. Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounding him and departed, leaving him for half from half, uh, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, by chance, a certain priest came down that road, noticed a priest, came down the road and passed on the other side, seeing that it was a, you know, a Samaritan man. Or, I'm sorry, seeing the man was, was ill, he, he didn't want to be bothered, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, who was a member of the, of the, of the worship in Jerusalem, when he arrived at the place, he came and he looked and he passed by on the other side, didn't want anything to do with the man who had been beaten and wounded. But notice, a certain Samaritan, the one that nobody wanted to be around. The half-breed, they would call him. They looked at, you know, this man comes. And this is just so the Lord. <laughs> this is just so the Lord. But a certain Samaritan... As he journeyed, he came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him, and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And this lawyer said, he who showed mercy on him. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. It was a stinging rebuke because the priest, the Levite, these two of all the men closest to the Lord should have stopped, should have stopped and helped this man. But it wasn't those representing God that stopped to help the man. It was the man who was considered the outcast. It was the man who nobody wanted to deal with. He's the one who had compassion. And in this parable, you see Jesus just kind of putting his finger on the heart of man. Because within each of us, there's these ugly spots that need to go. These ugly things that we have... Even remnants of it, you know, in each of us, there might be little spots of things that are lingering from our past. And every now and then they come up. And as Christians, it can even happen to us. And I would encourage you, as we continue this passage next week, to really examine our hearts about these things. Because we're going to talk more about the salvation end of this next week. But examine your heart about people, how you deal with people, how you look at them. May there not be any form of this in us. I want to read one thing to you, if I can find it here. It's not necessary. <laughs> let's ask the Lord to challenge us about these things. And let's, let's learn and grow and continue to love one another. And not let anything, not let anything get in the way 
of us ministering to one another. Nothing. The gospel lays kind of bare everything. It just lays the thing all straight, right? Because we are what? Are we many races or are we one race? We are one. We are one. And in Christ, we are one. We have differences, and that's okay. Why can't we just embrace the differences? I love difference. Think of what would happen if we all looked like me. God help you. I have to look at that every day in the mirror. And I look around, I see people just like me. I'd be like, you know, I really need some different ice cream. You think if we only had vanilla ice cream, you know. What about strawberry ice cream? We are not the same in that regard, but we are all one. We all came from the same place, came from the same man, Adam, and we all came from the same man. Those of us who are Christians, we are in Christ, and in him we are one. Amen? Amen. Let's stand together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, um, this passage this morning. Lord, it really lays bare things. And it really challenges us, Lord, and we pray that, God, you would help us, Lord, to lay all these things at your feet, Lord, that there be no semblance of any of these things, no semblance, no prejudice, no bigotry in our hearts and in our lives, Lord. And, Lord, when it does rear its ugly head, Lord, we pray that you would convict us quickly and that we would turn from those things by your Spirit's gifting and power, Lord, to turn away from those things and to love each other, for we are all made in your image. And Lord, you love us so much. And I just thank you for my brothers and sisters here this morning. I pray that you'd encourage them, strengthen them, protect them, bless them. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.